This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. We are joined again this week by our summer apprentice, Alec Rose. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch-up and then two main items of news, usually picked by myself and Eugene, but today, myself and Alec. So the source of our topics are from the Making Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week which is filled with current news, interesting links, and an in-depth analysis on something going on in culture. On Making It Up, we talk through these things, and we try to figure out some sort of general consensus and or just challenge each other's points of views and try to come to a conclusion about culture in our modern times. Are you all talked out about the World Cup already? So, okay, this will be interesting to you because you generally understand and respect the the strategic side of sports, right? Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is that the most compelling part about this World Cup was the introduction of the virtual assistant referee, VAR. So basically, previously, if a ref made a bad call, you couldn't review it. It's not like the NFL, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So what's interesting is that now that you have VAR, it changes the way how you play the game because there's a lot of things behind the scenes you can no longer do. Behind the scenes. So, for example, meaning, if you're at a corner kick at a dead ball situation, okay, I can't be grabbing at your shirt anymore, right? Why like, were you grabbing at my shirt to begin with? Because you're trying to you're trying to leverage and trying to get. Was that technically illegal? Or yeah, not? that is illegal for sure. Always been illegal. Always been illegal. But people were doing it regardless. Yeah. Got it. But now There's the VAR. A lot of things. But now the VAR will consistently catch that. I think it went from something like refs making ninety five percent of the calls accurately to like 99%. Another thing too is that now the way you defend- That is interesting. Now the way you, it's kind of like the NBA because in the NBA, they started becoming more strict on how they called fouls, right? Yeah. And that opened up the game. So in many ways, VR- Opened up the game? Well, it's it's way more offensive now, isn't it? Like because the way that you defend people, you can't be as aggressive. Okay, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. Like through restrictions, they had to find alternative methods to play. Correct. So that's the same thing that's happening in soccer right now. Football. Sorry, that is Alec. interesting. That, I think that's the most interesting thing is that a lot of people are like, oh, there's so many like center backs scoring, like defenders who traditionally aren't offensive threats. But at the same time, it's like, if you're already pretty good at heading the ball and now you're given much more range of motion and opportunity, like it just changes. This World Cup is a catalyst for a lot of change within the sport. So like, for example... I mean, I love football, but I also am not oblivious to all the shitty things about it, right? There's like in a 90-minute game, you might play 60, 70 minutes max. The ball is either blown dead or it's out of bounds, right? So how do you fix that? I have a question about VAR. So the World Cup was the first time this was used? It's been used before, but this is the first time it's been used in the World Cup. Were the teams all aware that it would yeah. be in use prior to I'm the pretty World sure. Cup? I don't remember which leagues that were using it. Some leagues were using it, I think. You guys understand the sport better than I do. Do you think coaches are coaching specifically with this in mind now? Or is it players sort of adjusting their game in reaction to the way they see VAR being used? I think the world of football is so advanced and they use so many statistics that it would be like quite naive to think that coaches weren't changing their tactics yeah. to work with VAR now. What is nice is that now you you do have the ability to cut out diving 
I think because now you've gone, you've now created a new culture around reviewing previous events at this sort of like the highest level in terms of like the refereeing, right? So if you if you're conditioning yourself to be okay to review if something's right or wrong, what is stopping you from like reviewing whether hey Neymar took a dive and he obviously won a penalty? Like what is the punishment that's going to be doled out for that? I think the game will be better for sure. I was getting to a point where it's just stupid. It does need to be streamlined though, the whole ex- the VAR experience. Because if you are just going to start reviewing dives and things, it takes time for the referee to get people to review it. And it's going to slow down the game even more than just letting it happen. Yeah. I, I'm curious if people would be adverse to if the game was stop time, like basketball. So 60-minute games and those 20 minutes. Oh, but then your game would go long. No, it wouldn't. I think, well, think about it. The game's already 90 minutes. And yeah, those, 90 minutes is already long. But the, yeah, I mean, it's still shorter than a lot of other games, I'd say. How long is a basketball game to watch from start to finish? Huge. Like Probably long? two and a half, three hours? No, rubbish. With, if you watch long. timeouts with the ad breaks in them and everything, it's just a long time. I only watch okay, them when fine. they're all cut ad out. breaks. Ad breaks, I'll accept. That's true. The NFL is really bad. The NFL me. is extraordinarily bad. The NFL is the worst. Actually, the VAR subject is related to my topic for today. But before we get into that, um, do you want to talk a little bit about what went up this week? Yeah. We had your editor's letter. Yeah, we had a video debut. Yeah, we had a video slash short film debut from Jimmy V from Toronto. He's a friend of Jeremy Lung's. That's pretty cool. That linking, I think, that Jeremy has been a long time making member and just provide a lot of good feedback in different ways. And then we were able to feature his exhibit and then him linking us to Jimmy and Jimmy being interested in debuting his video with us. I'm pleased with how that sort of interaction panned out. I think in, in general, my my perception on it is that you're currently in a point in time where the distribution opportunities, I guess it's either it's on social media where you're kind of subservient to someone else meets media like a media outlet. I think this is the one thing media to continue to exist into the next sort of five, 10 years needs to understand what it does well. And people need to understand why media is valuable. So I say this on the basis of like, what is the difference between you posting this on your own social media as a way to debut or your own YouTube versus the third party validation of a publication like a Macon? So I don't know if all media outlets recognize that that is what they need to kind of double down on. I think so. It's kind of, it reminds me of that time we talked about Grinders production studio. It's called Into and how that's a similar, not that we're starting a production studio, but it's similar in the idea that we are supporting independent creators that might not otherwise get supported. And we are the platform that they can choose to distribute from if they like. I think it's cool because Macon is very community-based in many ways, like the Slack channel and stuff like that. It's nice to see it actually integrated with the stories as well. It's really like it's all kind of feeds into itself. In some ways, like the the whole premise behind word of mouth is often said to be the best form of marketing. And I think that it holds true in this context because in a time and place when it's very difficult to necessarily meet everyone that you interact with, you're kind of looking for proof points to like expand the network rather than just like 
open the door for everybody. And I say that not because you're trying to be exclusive, but because if you're trying to maintain a certain level of something, right? Whether it's, I mean, in this in this sense, I think it's a strong sense of community where everyone, if everyone's on board for the same mission or goal, that has to be clear rather than just like, hey, you know what, like, sign up and, and welcome yourself well, in. Yeah, on that topic, you know, Justine Wong, also known as Parents and Portraits, she has been aware of us for a while. I've actually communicated her with on Instagram, I think as early as six or eight months ago. And then she recently joined, I don't know exactly what the kind of conversations were taking place, but she was speaking with the Toronto Macon folks and then they, they must have sold her on it. And that to me is like proof of what you're saying. This idea is kind of stuck in my head because I remember talking to people from Atlanta and the one thing they felt was lacking that despite the fact there were so many creators, artists coming out of there, there was no there was no media platform to service them. Do they mean a specifically Atlanta media publication? That has enough scale or reach or at least enough of a like a cosign. But they're looking for something that is Sorry, I'm, I'm not sure I understand. They're looking for something local grown or something that's global that's willing to pick them up. Um, I think it's a little bit more the latter because if you're looking for the opportunity to be heard, but you cannot be heard through things that are in your own backyard, that forces you to need to go to places that can distribute your message or your story. So that's why there's such like a, almost like a talent drain where people need to leave Atlanta or they need to like start speaking to people in LA and New York for worldwide visibility. And this is just me like spitballing and thinking like there's a lot of big cities out there that have a strong creative presence, but do they necessarily have the media to, to keep them uplifted and supported? So for example, like obviously London has a very strong media background and they have a creative community, so they're sorted. But when you start looking to other big cities like let's say Toronto. Toronto's increasingly becoming a metropolitan, like sort of a well-known global city. But do they have the opportunity to have like an access to like an international platform? And I'm not saying Macon is deliberately trying to be that, but I feel like, you know, there's so much good work coming out of there. I have no problem being a platform for good work globally, period. It just so happens you're now recognizing the concentration of strong creative talent coming out of Toronto that needs a place. Yeah. I don't think of different publications as being city specific. I do accept that. There has to be some sort of connectivity that's driven by like some sort of relationship. And I think it helps being, you know, going to the same parties, going right. to the same events. Yes, yes, it does. I was just going to say, I do accept that us being in Hong Kong means that we are going to be more aware of small things that happen in Hong Kong via small things that happen elsewhere. But I don't think the right tactic, if you're a, like, let's say you're a creative in Toronto, finding us is the right move because they don't have to think of like, is making a Toronto publication or not? It's just like, is there a media outlet that is global that is willing to support us? Like I said, it's not that I'm necessarily doubling down on Toronto. Like I just, I mean, I have a lot of friends there, but I think it's, it's, it's an example of what it means in this sort of like, emerging world where media is simultaneously getting bigger but smaller. So bigger conglomerates, bigger publications. But as we've had this discussion before, they're largely focused on bi-coastal cities. West Coast, East Coast, right? We as Macon don't need to be elbowing out, you know, New York and LA media 
for those New York and LA artists. Like that's not, that's not smart from either perspective, like for us or for creatives in smaller cities. You grew up outside of London. If you were an, a creative or an artist based in Manchester, what would that look like versus being an artist creative or whatever in London? That's a relevant subject for me right now, as in I know that I want to go down the creative route, but at the point that I am, I'm probably not going to be able to afford to live in London. And the sad thing is that the opportunities just aren't there in the rest of the UK. Like, I actually don't really know what the creative landscape is like in Manchester. I know that it's much, much smaller and there are way fewer opportunities there. So you kind of have to be in London for those media outlets. At the end of the day, there has to be a smarter integration of media on a global landscape that can also support creators. I don't think Macon is there yet, but does it have an aspiration to do that? Of course. It's like oh, definitely. If if you know Alec is somewhere, can he create a relevant footprint within the global landscape if he's doing great work? That's the way I look at it. You know what you said before about how it's funny that we interact with a lot of people around the world that we might never get the chance to meet. That's my segue to Alex's topic. Cool. Should we get into it? Yeah, it's an article on a website called Peter Pixel about three so-called influencers who had quite large followings on YouTube and Instagram. Their channel was called High on Life. And they actually died recently while swimming at the top of Shannon Falls in British Columbia. The social media reaction to the deaths has been actually quite shocking. Comments like, they had it coming, good riddance. I read social media influencers and start to laugh. Calm as a bitch, don't respect nature, and this is what you get in return. How do we separate the real world and Instagram? And, and these influencers, have they distanced themselves so far from their followers that their followers actually don't even really see them as, as human beings anymore and therefore have like absolutely no empathy for them? Um, it's not been seen as a real death almost. It's kind of like a character or three characters have died. I, I do think it's interesting because it reminds me as well of last year, there was that YouTuber that pulled this prank where he held a really thick book in front of him. Do you remember this? And then his partner shot a gun at him. I remember it was for kind of a viral video. Yes, exactly. And, and he passed away. So he was holding a book over his chest, imagining that that would stop the bullet and it didn't. And then he passed away and it's obviously tragic that he died. But at the same time, this is like the same thing that recently happened. It's like, oh, well, you were doing this thing for social media, for your channel. And so I think that kind of erodes people's ability to feel. Well, I have a question. If you can understand why they did it, what does that mean? So for example, if I look at someone who was trying to be internet famous by doing this stunt, like I don't side with the the ultra aggressive that are like, oh, they had it coming for them. They're so stupid they deserve to die. What does it mean if you can attain that level of empathy? That's kind of a pretty philosophical question, but I find it interesting because I've lately tried my best to understand why people with really strong emotions or reactions are feeling the way they do, right? So like the people that are like, oh, good riddance. Oh, they had it coming to them, et cetera. Why are they feeling it? And likewise, like the people that are 
doing what they're doing, like what is that relationship between updating your social media in a certain light versus the reactions people garner? Like where is that that friction emerging from? I would say that people reacting like that, it's a symptom of hiding behind the internet where you're not you're not a real person and the people on the internet aren't a real person. They're kind of just a symbol on the internet. And it's very easy behind a keyboard to say something stupid and take it really lightly. But in real life, they wouldn't say these things. I don't believe that these people actually feel this. I think it's just easy to say online. It is funny because even though nowadays a lot of social media channels do require real identities and some method of verification, there is still that symptom of anonymity allowing you to say whatever you want. And there's a little bit less awareness when you're just responding to something online. You just feel like no one is ever going to trace this back to me specifically. Yeah. Maybe the three of us don't feel that way, but... I'm just curious, like, what pushes someone to be so angry that they they post on social media, good riddance, or they had it coming for them? But do you think it's real anger? I don't think it's real anger. I think it's... You think they're just trolling? I think it's just it's just another story that they've scrolled past. I don't think it's even really registered as a death to them. I think it's just almost like just a plot of a film. It's like a story, which is what I find interesting is one of the points I've got written down here is that these influencers actually gain their followers by making their lives a story and by making their lives unreal and basically completely unattainable. And that's why they get their followers because people love to see that. But on the flip side of that, it completely distances them from their followers. Because real life is not that interesting all the time. Right. That's a good point. Yeah, and it's like it's a really good everything point. leading up to the point of their death was a fabrication, was this idealized version. So the death itself just doesn't land the same way. Yeah. It, it's kind of a strange. Man, it's yeah. It's actually the way that you've put it is that you know that that whole Andy Kaufman or like for what was the movie yeah. where where basically he doesn't know he's being recorded and his life is being put on display. Wait, Truman you Show. Mean, Truman yeah. Show, sorry. Not Truman Show. Um, but it's interesting because that was done on the expectation someone wouldn't want that to happen. Like now we're totally okay with it where we're self-producing our own stories. So it's like a flip. But I, I think that it's going to be really interesting to, to see and understand what it looks like when we have this full cycle of people that have gone and run a whole life under the microscope as a story. And these are regular people. I mean, it kind of happens when you're a celebrity, but these are obviously people that, I guess maybe it's not that different. Maybe a celebrity versus like an influencer share some of the same psychological pressures. Well, I actually think a celebrity of a certain level, because of their level of fame and the amount of money they have, they're able to escape some of the pressures because they can craft like a whole second persona. This is the celebrity Beyonce vs. Like mm. the actual what Beyonce, I do at home who, on a Sunday. Who honestly yeah. we probably know nothing about. Whereas these people are kind of taking their regular lives. Exactly. Like these three people, they probably when they started out, I, I didn't follow high on life, but when they started out, it was just like, oh, we like doing these fun things and we're gonna film ourselves. And then it took off. And it's like, oh man, now we're these people that the internet knows. I mean, this is kind of the pretense behind the series that hopefully will eventually launch with Edward KB. We're sitting on a bunch of episodes. But basically, Edward KB, if you're not familiar, is a pretty famous Instagrammer. I'll use that. And basically, it's interesting because for them, it's like, what does it mean when you have you know 300,000 followers and every part of your digital life is subject to a metric? How many likes? 
How many comments? And what does that look like when something doesn't reach the baseline? Like, how do you, how should you feel, right? And do you have the self awareness to push past it and recognize? Oh, you know what? Like, yeah. What it comes down to is that it's not about really me. It's like something else is like suppressing me. I don't know. I think it's just really interesting. Do you guys have some kind of takeaway from what happened with these three YouTubers? Instagram is now so ingrained in our life that it actually is quite hard. We get told all the time, like, get off your phone. But it is actually really hard to do that, genuinely separating the real world from Instagram because you don't think that you do it. We definitely don't do it to the extent that an influencer would do it, but you don't post your everyday life because it is boring. That's probably why I don't post on Instagram that much anymore. I just feel like I don't do anything interesting. I, I think my takeaway is that right now I feel nothing I do is inherently interesting or the medium is not correct. Like the ideas that I want to express arguably are expressed best in this once a week podcast with you guys versus like on Instagram, like it's not the right medium for me to talk about something a little bit more profound or in depth, which I find more interesting than me sharing a photo of where I went or where I'm at currently on Instagram stories. Actually, what's interesting to me is both of you kind of responded as creators, as people who are posting and publishing. And my takeaway is as a consumer, I think this is something also not anything new. I think we remind ourselves this anyway in personal relationships that I can never know exactly all the problems you have or all of your background. And even in real life, we are all portraying like this professional best version of ourselves. And I think when on YouTube, on Instagram, et cetera, you got to remind yourself like these are exactly the same real people as your friends and family who you don't know everything about either. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, like that feeling definitely erodes the more you're on it, but you got to try to inject that into yourself somehow. And to be a bit more cynical of things, like do doubt things, like don't just accept that this is somebody's real life, kind of have that extra layer of like, surely they're not really doing that. Mm. This is not what they do every single day. British people are pretty well equipped for that. Let's get into my subject today, which I alluded to was in relation to the VAR conversation we had in the intro. So I wanted to pick these two articles that we shared on Wednesday and Monday in the briefing about how surveillance in general globally has increased, but in China in particular, with advances in facial recognition technology and artificial intelligence use. So I think we generally are familiar with facial recognition when it comes to unlocking your phone or accessing your bank account. And those things like aren't as weird as they were when it was first introduced. And I think the general public is familiar with law enforcement using facial ID to some degree, like fingerprints to identify criminals and to enforce law. And, you know, we see it at borders all the time, right? And how aggressively it's used can be of concern, but the fact that it's used to some degree, I think we are familiar with. The thing that people are mentioning now, like critics are mentioning now, is that you know 
there are flaws with facial recognition where it isn't accurate with people of color. Their faces might be put in public databases that are generally accessible, and law enforcement might try to use it in real time in ways that are flawed or not monitored properly. And it's kind of like when fingerprints were first introduced or DNA testing, there weren't measures in place as to like, to what degree can you use this and at what moments in time? And that's kind of what's happening now with facial recognition and AI. Like at what points of law enforcement is this okay? And the thing when you talk about China is that all of those questions about privacy and bias, like there's no even real point in discussing it because we know that the Chinese government is not concerned about how aggressively they're using national surveillance. Like they're really upfront about this being a measure to control 1.4 billion people in the most secure way possible. So if we're like to talk about to what degree can this be used, I think it's more applicable to other places. The thing that I am most fascinated by is not actually the advancements in the technology, but that a perception of increased surveillance will result in self-surveillance. That humans believing that there is monitoring will then keep themselves from doing things, even if the technology isn't there. To, to push back against that, is that good or bad? I mean, we were just talking about self-awareness and if you are generally <laughs> under the pretense of massive awareness because of surveillance, what does that mean? I didn't really comment on it as like good or bad so much as like a really interesting interesting thing about humans. But if I had to say good or bad. Maybe, maybe we can frame it this way. Yeah. What do you guys value about privacy currently? Like why is it important to you personally? For me, privacy is the opportunity to experiment and explore, to do things potentially, to test things out without necessarily needing to have some sort of validation from someone else and or just someone else's eye, watchful eye, right? That's part of it. Secondly, I used to think that, oh, if you're not doing anything sketchy or shady, then who cares about surveillance? But I think that where it becomes challenging is that different people have different rulers or they have different measures of what is good and what is bad. And basically, if you're doing something in open, someone might perceive that to be bad even though you think it's good. So I think that's another way of looking at it, that, that sort of surveillance element. I think in terms of privacy, before even talking about security, it is worrying to imagine governments having a lot of saved information on citizens who haven't done anything wrong in the event that they need it. So even before one of us have committed a crime, we have like an extensive record. And that doesn't sit well with me, even as I recognize that I don't know if there's anything we can do about that being the case. But when I was gonna say about security, if I, would, I just wanna go back to the thing about people behaving differently with the perception of monitoring. There was like this apartment complex in China that, was, um, that had a lot of bicycle theft like at the entrance where people were parking their bikes and then they put in a camera and it just like totally stopped. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we know this already, like in malls or elevators, sometimes the cameras might not actually work or be real cameras, but the perception of there being a camera results in different actions. Yeah. 
I'm not saying this is good or bad. I just think that's so fascinating to me that a thing doesn't have to work for you to behave differently. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a big culture of CCTV in, in Britain, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't really have anywhere to compare it to really, I guess. But maybe that's just who I am. It's not prevalent to me. I mean, I don't walk around thinking, oh, there's another CCTV camera, there's another one. But I, maybe that's because I don't do anything that would warrant being, well, maybe I do. <laughs> just don't get caught. But then again, the, the whole CCTV thing is almost a moot point as well. Because if something is going to happen, like in general, someone will also just have a, a phone camera on them. You know what I mean? Like it's not really, I think that we've almost created a new level of acceptance of monitoring that governmental monitoring actually might not be as big or a drastic step as we think it is. I'm, okay, I have several things. One is I do get concerned about China from a human rights perspective, even though I feel totally helpless in doing anything about it. Um, because obviously like they monitor people who we wouldn't think have done anything wrong, but have been outspoken against certain things about China's government. And that I'm not exempt from that, right? Like I go on this podcast and I've said some potentially touchy things and I live next to China. So it could come back to haunt me, who knows? Um, but about the self-surveillance thing, do you guys remember the incident with the couple on the plane? Yeah, in the, it was in the briefing. Yeah, right? it was. Yeah. It was, yeah. The one of the the two people that fell in love, quotation marks. Yeah, which is like exactly what you're talking about self-monitoring because this one couple, they were like in different rows and then they asked like the person next to them to swap seats so they could be together and then just live streamed essentially this random, these two random strangers who were on the plane and like posted their entire conversation. And there was like a lot of discussion, like is this okay or not? Yeah. Oh, it's kind of weird now. Like I read like a follow-up article. The the female had to delete all her social media accounts because she was getting doxxed for being Asian American and for being like essentially a whore because that girl. That Wait, was, which one? The the one who was monitoring them or the one being monitored? The one being monitored because they had Shoot. left to go to the bathroom and she was like making a joke that they went to go have sex. But like, yeah. Anyways, the girl that was like mo- monitoring I didn't know them. that. Yeah, I read an article today. I can share with you guys later. Um, side note, Ewan uh, Holden is the brother of Stuart Holden, who played for the U.S. national team, I think. Anyways, Sorry, he's, a, he's an ex-professional footballer. Ewan is Holden. this a guy? Yeah, the guy. Oh, okay. Sorry, like, I didn't totally, even know these people's he's names. He's totally like doubled down on it. Like he's like posting selfies, like trying to get modeling. I don't know. It looks like he's trying to model and stuff. Weren't you going to say something about the woman who was doing the monitoring? Oh, yeah. She's kind of grimy. She's like basically was trying to leverage it into getting a job at BuzzFeed to trying to sell her for services as a screenwriter, all these things. And she felt as though like, oh, it was all innocent. But like. Well, the interesting thing is that her thinking that it's innocent. I I know that there are other people who agree with her because there's this like total erosion of being a private person and a public person. It could happen to one of us that we are doing something interesting on the street and then people like whip out their phones. The reason why the whole story took a negative slant and she got doxxed is because they think she's, it's because she's Asian American. And the fact that she's Asian American, that whole sort of like how 
Caucasians and like the white world interact with Asian women is the reason why people were like attacking her versus if she was just another like white woman. Well, see, I hadn't seen that. There's a huge article that came out, which is where I heard about the follow-up. But I also am very, I'm always weary when I talk about Asian race politics in America because I don't understand it. It's hard for me to like, yeah, let's talk about it when I don't, I don't really know where to start and where to add value to the conversation. Well, this is new information to me. So I can say that before this whole Asian American identity came into play, there was already negative feedback about someone spending an entire plane ride monitoring two people. Yeah. Like just that on its own was to some people stepping over a line. No, I mean, at the end of the day, like this won't be the first and last time something like this happens. Would you be comfortable, sorry, this is a total different road, but I wanted to ask, would either of you be comfortable moving to China for like an extended period of time? I'm down to do anything. So sure, why not? Like I the, think the fact opportunity- that your face would be, not just your face, but that your entire life would then be entered into CCP records. Oh wait, do you mean just with regards to this article? Yeah, yeah. I meant specifically, does the surveillance thing come to mind if you were considering moving to China? No, not for me. I'm already on WeChat, so I'm kind of effed. <laughs> so, no, I think yeah, actually that was part of another article too that we, we shared. It was just like, well, obviously WeChat yeah, the social credit system. Have, well, it's not, it's kind of, yeah, just like keeping tabs on people. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult situation for any foreign brand to enter China because they need to play by the government's rules, right? So having said that, like if China's government decides to promote one messaging app over any other messaging app and block the rest because of, the backend information received, what are you going to really do about it? Those are things that would make me hesitant about yeah. moving there. Fair. Like, let's say, even if I had some attractive job opportunity, I have reservations about having to buy into the whole Chinese system. Yeah. That will also introduce a line of thinking to certain people. Because if you're thinking about it, and there's yet to be a, a specific pinpointing of a quote-unquote horror story for a foreign national going to China, then I, I think that people aren't really aware of the situation at hand. But the reason I bring this up is because if you want to do the best work and if there's a certain level of talent acquisition that is a requirement, could this scare off people? Mm. I mean, I'm just one out of three. So we're at a very small scale survey. But if I have reservations, I would imagine other people do too. Well, we, we, we've seen it like on that WeChat uh, article where people basically were trying their best to stay off WeChat. You know? So it exists. The sentiment is definitely not unique to you. But I don't, I don't know if that would be enough of deterrent for China to relax their surveillance in any way. But you guys did hear about that like free internet corner on one of the Chinese islands. I think it's Hainan. So they wanted to increase tourism to one of their islands. And so they set up this like, no firewall area. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, That's you guys didn't hear about that? Where tourists, like if you're a foreign passport holder, you could go to this area and then like get on your Instagram, get on your Facebook. That's interesting. It's kind of like when you go to 
certain countries, I think it's Singapore or something, where only foreign passport holders can use the casinos. <laughs> it's bad because that, that's what, exactly what I thought when you asked if I would have any reservations about moving to China. After saying no about the surveillance, I thought you then mentioned um, kind of like the censorship of websites. And I thought actually not being able to go on Instagram and Facebook would, would play more of a, a role in my decision about living there than being surveyed by the government. That's fair. But that's a terrible state of affairs, isn't it, really? Where it means more to me to be able to, kind of what we were saying, survey myself, show everybody myself than to be watched by the government. I would guess that you see it as affecting your life more directly. Yes. It's hard to make a judgment on being surveyed by the government because we don't really know the extent to which it happens and also how it can be used against us yet. Yes. And I think for me, the reason I have stronger reservations is because I perceive it as more hazardous to myself and people I love, which is also related to our national identities. Let's wind things down. If you are interested in learning more about Macon and reading or listening to our stories, which are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. And if you really like this podcast, do us a huge favor and recommend it to a friend, give us a rating, maybe even send us an email. We have a new email address where you can email us specifically about this podcast and things we talk about. It's makingitup at makin.com. I'm Eugene. I'm Alec. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.